Week one, just wait. I want you to imagine if you picked up your Bible and you saw the ministry of Jesus ending in the book of John. For those of you that may not know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. I want you to imagine if you picked up your Bible and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you would see that in John it ends with the ministry of Jesus. I want you to imagine you skipped and the next, very next book was Romans. You go from four Gospels about the ministry of Jesus, and then Romans would pick up, and you start to hear about this random guy named Paul writing to the followers of Jesus in Rome. There would be a lot of gaps and a lot of questions had we not had something to tie the ministry of Jesus to this random dude named Paul in Rome. The first thing we would say was, who the heck is Paul? Where did he come from? I'm, I'm hearing about all these 12 disciples, and then this random dude, Paul, comes about. Well, how did the news of Jesus even get to Rome? Because where the ministry was and where most of the things were happening, we see a lot of the ministry in Jerusalem. What, where is this gap between how the gospel of the kingdom, how the gospel of Jesus got from Jerusalem to Rome? How, what's, who's this Paul guy? What the heck happened? Well, the book of Acts answers all these questions. It fills in the gaps. It's all about how the gospel spread the news of Jesus and all he had done from Jerusalem to Rome. Not just Rome, but specifically the Roman government. We, we find at the very end of Acts, um, we actually see that uh, Paul is coming before um, someone who is very much persecuting Christians. And some of you know who that is, and we'll get into that a little later. But at the time, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, getting into Acts, Christianity really had nothing going for it. There was no money. There was no proven leadership. The only leaders in the Christian faith were dudes, you know, cutting dudes' ears off and denying Jesus that he even was the Savior and people stripping down, you know, naked and going fishing. Peter, <laughs> y'all don't read that part. Jesus died, he took his cloak off and went in the water. <laughs> we got all these kind of things where that there's a lot of shakiness going on. There's no money, there's no proven leaders, there's no advertising, there's no theological degrees, there's no Billy Graham, there's, there's nothing like that. It was new. And these 12 disciples, or 11 at this point, they're teaching very new truths and very new ideas that were not very credible to the world. And it was very natural that what they were about to do and what they were about to say would end in their persecution and in their death because all the priests and the religious leaders would consider what they were saying blasphemy. For those of you that may not know, all the disciples that we're about to read and all the things that are going to happen they all get martyred. They all are murdered. They are, except for one who had a really lonely experience on an island. His name was John, and he wrote this crazy book called Revelation that no one really knows what the heck it's about. <laughs> we try, but we don't know the, the real nuances, and maybe it's, maybe Revelation, we're going to get into this later, but maybe Revelation is less of a book about the end times and more a book about the love of Jesus. We always look at Revelation as, oh, it's the end of the Bible. It must mean the end times, but maybe we've gotten that wrong. 
Christianity has adopted this idea of rapture, which you never find in Scripture. But we don't. But oh, whoa, hold on. Are you? Are just, just, just follow me for a second. We have all these ideas of what's going on, but at that time, they had no idea. There was nothing about this. It was twelve guys or eleven guys at this point who were talking about ideals that were crazy. They had nothing going for them. And somehow this group of nobodies gets in front of the government of the Roman Empire proclaiming about this dude who died that everyone knew about and then rose again and then talked for 40 days and then disappeared and now we're going to talk about what he did. So this writer of the book that fills in these gaps about how it got from Jerusalem to Rome is named Luke. The same Luke who wrote, I got a lot more to teach y'all apparently. (laughs) The same dude who wrote Luke. He's a physician. He's a Gentile. He was a companion of Paul. Acts gives us the detail. Luke writes the details about what is happening and how the gospel spread. And in fact, I know I'm, I'm going slow, but just let me go there. Acts was actually written almost 100 years after the fact. See, a lot of people think that Luke wrote this like, oh, they were writing Acts as it was happening. But what Luke was doing, he actually wrote it, he was writing about events that occurred, and most of it was, and all of it per se, was actually lined up to be proven because of the historical framework, the timeline, the details given, all these things. And Luke begins to write Acts, giving an account and summarizing the book he wrote earlier called Luke. What authors would do when they would write something, they would always preface the new writing about a writing that they wrote formerly. Are y'all following so far? And Acts 1-1 starts off like this. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book that Luke was writing was Luke. And just like the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke was writing about what Jesus began to do, what Jesus began to teach. A little kind of a cool fact, ancient books were actually written on papyrus scrolls, and they were usually about 35 foot in length. And when the writer was writing on the scrolls, when they got too bulky to carry around, they would simply start a new book. That's why you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd. That's why you have, you know, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, 3rd Peter. Dude couldn't stop writing. And the books were just too bulky. They couldn't carry them around. So originally, the idea of Luke and Acts, it was one book that had to be broken up into two. The first book, Luke, was about the beginnings of Jesus' work. And the book of Acts was something more. And even in Luke chapter 1, it talks about this guy, Theophilus. Look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. He starts out by saying, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have fulfilled among us. This is really cool how this is set up. Like Luke is writing about things that have happened. I mean, I would love to have been one of those journalists. Like, let me tell you about what we saw. 
it, it kind of it, it really sets up a very interesting dynamic. Let me tell you what we saw happen. He says, many people have set out to write the accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Theophilus was obviously this man of high honor, and Luke said, I want to tell you about this person called Jesus. I want to tell you about everything that happened after he was crucified. And Theophilus, in order to tell you, I'm going to write a book. And the first book's going to tell you how Jesus began his ministry and what he did. And now, Theophilus, that you got an idea of what Jesus did, now I'm going to give you a new book called Acts to talk about the continuation of what he did. You see, the first book, Luke, is about the beginnings of Jesus' work. The second book, the book of Acts, is the continuation of the work of Jesus, which continues today. That's why it's called the Acts. Some versions say the Acts of the Apostle. It is not just about what Jesus did. It is the continuation of what Jesus started. Acts spans about 30 years. It's a 30-year lifespan of what happened back in this time after Jesus left. And it's not the full history of the church. Some people think you read Acts and that's everything, but there was many other things going on that we never read about. You don't really hear much about the church in Galilee. You don't hear much about the church in Samaria. And you don't hear much about the church in Egypt. Um, in fact, Acts ends with Paul in Rome waiting to appear before Nero. Um, those of you who don't know Nero, Nero was famous for persecuting and killing many Christians um, in A.D. 64. After Paul was put on trial, he killed a lot, a lot of Christians. So the reason we have Acts is twofold, an account of what happened, how it happened, and it's to begin to see how a church can be set on fire and activate a true ministry that is inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit. It is a picture of how the church of nobodies with no money, with no expectation, with no history book, with no New Testament, it is a story, it is a picture of how they did what they did. And as I read that, I don't think that relentless needs to go to another church conference to figure out how to grow the ministry. I think they're helpful. We're probably going to go to conferences. I'm not speaking against that. But my heart for this house is to figure out how did they do what they did when they didn't know what they were about to do. Y'all bored? Because what's going on is they had no idea that they were about to speak in tongues. They had no idea that fire was about to blow through the room. They had no idea that they were going to start healing people. They had no idea what could happen. And I guarantee you, they didn't have an idea that in 30 years they would all be killed. Within 30 years. They didn't have any expectation. And in Acts chapter 1, continuing in verses 1 and 2, it says this, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions. Someone say, further instructions. 
through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. He says, let me tell you another story. Let me tell you some more things that happened. And he says, Jesus gave, you, gave some instructions through the Holy Spirit. Gee, look at the humility of Jesus. This dude's been resurrected, crucified, resurrected, glorified. He's got all the authority. He's got complete sovereignty. Yet in his most glorious day, Jesus did not speak on his own behalf. It says, keep that scripture up there if you will, please. Just keep the scriptures up there tonight. It says, he spoke through the instructions. He spoke instructions through Holy Spirit. Even Jesus said, it is not I who is going to speak. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit direct me on what to tell you. And why is it that we have become a people who choose to do anything less than that? We have not understood the value in seeking instruction and seeking the hows and what's of what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. We use logic. We use reason. We read our scripture. We come up with good ideas. We look at proven models. And we have forgotten as a church how to simply say, Holy Spirit, have your way. And on one side, we know that the Holy Spirit is meant for unbelievers because it says that all who come to know the Father through Jesus is by the moving of the Holy Spirit. But the issue with that, the Holy Spirit works through people and no one's letting the Holy Spirit communicate them to find the unbelievers. We're just trying to have all these crusades and all these outreach ideas and all these evangelical movements trying to get people to say a sinner's prayer so that we can put up on a screen how many people got saved. And no one's saying, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do? The Holy Spirit is not just, and it's not just to get those unbelievers, but it's also a great and significant way to work in and through us who believe. And we're not seeing any fire in the church. We're not seeing a church that is relentless for God because we are not seeking instruction from Holy Spirit. We're just trying to get it all ourselves. Well, what makes the most sense? And this is the pattern for the book of Acts. People depending and relying on the Holy Spirit so that the Father's work can be accomplished. Which we're able to justly perform because of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Everyone following? Okay. Y'all quiet, so I'm, I'm going to take it that you're just... Okay. So... Luke sets this up. He says, this is why I'm writing it. And Jesus gave some instructions relying on the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about the instructions. Look at verse 3. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. He wasn't just saying, believe in me, get saved. 
He wasn't going around telling people, hey, I died for you, I died for you, I died for you, I died for you. That is not why Jesus stayed for 40 days. Anyone who was going to believe that Jesus died at that point, they would have believed. The disciples believed. Even the very Roman soldiers doubted what they were doing the second they killed him and the skies darkened and the father turned away. There was conviction. People saw what went on and they were either going to believe or not. And Jesus, when Jesus returned, he did not spend his 40 days going, all right, now this is how you're going to tell people. Tell people that I died on the cross for your sin. He didn't, he didn't spend his time doing that. He spent all this time doing one thing. I'm going to teach you about a kingdom. Because the kingdom that I have made possible for you, you have never seen it. It's a different culture. It's a different way of life. You're going to have access to things that are supernatural. You're going to be able to move heaven to earth. But you don't know what heaven looks like and you've never lived in it. But I am making a way for you to do that and live in that thing that you have no idea what it looks like. Which is kind of scary to me. Like if I'm a disciple and, and like Jesus comes up from a grave and then starts saying, hey, I'm going to teach you how to live a certain way of life that you've never seen before. And then Jesus leaves. I'm going to be kind of disturbed. Like, hey, I want you to live in a certain way that you've never seen, and I'm just going to give you 40 days to talk about it. And here we are with Christianity thousands of years later, and we still can't get past the cross. Oh, well, Kyle, that's, I can't believe you're saying that. Like, what do you mean getting past the cross? There is more than just believing in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. And you must have salvation to walk through this door. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. I don't know about you, but if my God teaches me to pray thy kingdom come on the earth as is in heaven, I don't want to wait to die to find the rooms. I want to figure out how to walk in the hallways and the rooms right now. So Jesus spends all this time teaching them this is what it looks like. And these are the rooms, and I'm going to teach you how to navigate through it. And he says, this kingdom, guys, is so different that I'm going to give you one instruction. Which if I heard that, I'd be like, really? One? You're going to give me one? Jesus, one? But what is it? Well, look at verse 4 and 5. Well, once he was eating with them and he commanded them, do not leave. Someone say, just wait. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One instruction, just wait. Just wait. Don't leave Jerusalem I want you to wait until you are baptized in Holy Spirit. I don't want you to do a thing until you are fully immersed in the Holy Spirit. Because what you are to do, you have got to be immersed in that to start pursuing 
something that you don't know what it looks like and you really don't understand the full concept of the cost it's going to be for your lives. You have got to have power on you before you do anything. And the thing that I see in the church, including this one, because I'm not going to put us on a pedestal like we're above. It took us 35 minutes to put our hands up today. Don't tell me you're on fire for God. Oh, he's tough. Yeah, because I love you enough to shoot you straight. Well, I'm not a worshiper. That's not an option, my friend. We're not on fire. We come in here like, like, like we come in here like bored and, and, and worried and anxious and, and, and we life's troubles are weighing on us. And we claim that we're on fire for God. Jesus knew. He was like, guys, if you're going to go do this thing, if you're going to go make disciples and bring the kingdom from heaven to earth, before you do anything, you just need to wait and be immersed in me. You need to be immersed in what I am sending you because it's going to have a huge cost and you're going to do great things, but don't try to do it if you are not intimately baptized in Holy Spirit. Baptism means to be immersed in something. Do not try to go out and do this unless you are immersed because everything is going to come against you. There are demons, there are principalities, there are all the, they will come against you. And I hear all these stories of all these people always going to church and everything about their lives is jacked up and they've got their own opinions about how this works and how that works. And the fact is, I don't care your theology. I don't care about your denomination. There is only one truth. You don't get to waver from it. You don't get to get your own beliefs with it. It's in this book. And they got so immersed in him that they never questioned it. I want to be a part of a church that doesn't question how crazy he can get and how real he can get. I want to be so immersed in him that whatever he says goes. But here's the issue. We have put expectation on what crazy looks like. Because the church thinks crazy is angels showing up and fire falling down. The craziest thing Jesus did was wash someone's feet. The craziest thing Jesus did was the best thing you've done all day, Mary, was take that really expensive jar of perfume and pour it on me and didn't feed the poor. His idea of crazy was so, because we've put expectations. I've, I've been doing research on all the, the different revivals over the years. You've got like the Brownsville revival. You've got the, Torrent, the Toronto outpouring. You've got all these crazy things, people falling out in the spirit, people talking about dust in the air and clouds in the room and all these things. And what we do as people of God, we, 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 we say, I want to see that. And God's like, why are you putting an expectation on me? You know what the great things about the disciples were? They didn't know what they were looking for. They didn't have a concept of fire. They didn't have a concept of spiritual gifts. They didn't know anything. All they knew was Jesus was gone, and he said, just wait. Get out. You need to wait until you are fully baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see, we're made, I've, I've said this before, but I'm going to go there again. We're made up of three parts, a spirit, a soul, and a body. 
our bodies are going to die. Your flesh will never be saved. That is why God says, I'm going to give you a new body to put you on the new earth. You cannot save your flesh. That's why your flesh always wants to do wrong. Amen? Then you got a soul. It's your mind, your will, your emotions. The Bible says, be transformed by renewing your mind, renewing your soul. Well, how do I renew my soul? My spirit is either going to be totally immersed in my emotions or totally immersed in what is holy. And God says, I'm going to send you what is holy, the Holy Spirit, to replace yours so that your mind, your will, and emotions will submit to him and control your flesh. And the reason we're still in sin over and over is because if you were truly seeking, your flesh would not have a vote. I'm just being real. See, we all the, the, the Bible talks about that the Holy Spirit is a helper. We always attribute or attribute helper to this idea of helping me through my life situations. And I do believe that's so. But what if it goes even deeper? What if the helper is the one to help you accomplish the good and perfect work that God has in store? What if the helper is more about his plan than your issues? So Jesus says, I'm only going to give you guys one instruction. I'm not going to tell you what's coming. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you an exact time frame. I'm just going to tell you, you just need to wait and don't leave. John baptized with water, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to a very big theological debate. And some of you know where I'm going to go. Is there a separate second baptism of the Holy Spirit? Anybody ever heard of this debate? Here's the debate. Well, Jesus was God. I mean, he was like born of a, you know, a virgin, gave birth to him. He came from somewhere. He's doing his, his life, and he gets ready for ministry, and it says he was baptized in the, in the Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the argument is because in Acts it says that Jesus died, rose from the, the, the grave, conquered the, the, the chains of death, hell, and the grave, and they didn't get Holy Spirit till days and days and days and days later when they're in the upper room. And, and the, the debate is, well, in the upper room, they were seeking God, fire came from heaven, and they started speaking in tongues. So you have like two sides of the debate is you don't have Holy Spirit unless you have tongues. And then there's another side saying you get Holy Spirit when you get saved. That's the debate. And for those that think that Holy Spirit is separate, they think that there is a separate experience for you to be immersed in Holy Spirit. And some people think that means, oh, we know you have the Holy Spirit if you speak in tongues. Y'all follow that's the debate. Is there a second baptism of the Holy Spirit? They have been commissioned to do the work. And their first instruction is to wait. And I was, as I was studying to talk about this debate, 
of second baptism are all in one, I think it just comes down to this. People are asking, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit rather than are you baptized? Because this is what I believe and this is what we teach at Relentless and if you don't like it, I truthfully don't care because this is just what we're doing and I got scripture to back it up and if you disagree, don't waste my time telling me because I'm just going to rebuke you. (laughs) I believe wholeheartedly that when you get saved, you receive everything. All of God is in you. You, he broke the chains. You say, I accept you, and you get God. If that wasn't true, then how can you be convicted? The Bible says the only way you can be convicted is by the Holy Spirit. But there is a separate thing, not because of the Father, but because of us. It's do you receive what is in you, or are you still seeking something else? The Holy Spirit is in you, but are you seeking God to such a degree that you are totally immersed in what you have? Being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see, what we've done is we've made this whole like you know, dichotomy of is the Father going to send the Holy Spirit? He's already in you, but are you going to receive that truth or not? It's not up to God to baptize you a second time. It's are you going to jump in or not? John baptized you with water. He wants to baptize you with fire. He wants to baptize you with Holy Spirit. Well, how does he baptize me? He sends it and he says, just wait. And what we do is some of us are focusing on the wrong thing. We're focused on, hey, when is this thing going to happen where I get all of the fire and, and all? when am I going to get that? And we're saying, Jesus, give it to me. Jesus, give it to me. Jesus, give it to me. What we do is we are focusing on the totally the wrong thing. And the disciples are actually guilty of it. I'm going to read on a little bit to, to, to describe this to you. In Acts 1.6, it says, When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They were fixated on the wrong thing. That's why Jesus says, listen, trust me, you don't need to do anything. You just need to wait because your eyes are still focused on the wrong thing. What are they focused on? They are focused on a literal Israel and a literal restoration of a political kingdom. They were saying, Jesus, when are you going to do this? You died, you rose, you healed. Now, when is Israel going to get to the top? When are we going to get our power restored? But Jesus is not talking about a national kingdom of Israel or political, territorial, literal kingdom. What Jesus is talking about when he says Israel, he is talking about the people of God. That is why we have to be adopted sons and daughters into the body of Christ. Because none of us are Israelites. Israel, you have to be adopted into the church. That's why he says, accept me as your savior so that I can reclaim your birthright. You were born into sin, but now I'm going to adopt you and you're born as mine. I want to restore Israel and I want you to restore a heavenly kingdom to this earth. I think we need to shift our prayers for America 
Because we are so obsessed, just like the Israelites, just like the 11 disciples, God, when are you going to restore Israel? Most people in America, God, when are you going to restore America? God does not want to restore America. He wants to restore the earth. He wants to restore every territory, every country, Every nationality, not so that you can say I'm proud to be an American, but so that you can say I'm proud to be a kingdom citizen. See, y'all don't like that because we, we get prideful about our nation. We, we get so sucked up in the red, white, and blue, and none of us are fixed on the right thing. We wonder why we're not seeing anything of heaven on earth. Because you don't care about heaven. You care about the, the declaration of independence, which is born out of rebellion. Yet y'all don't want to hear this. Am I right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with America, but that's not what needs to be restored. Heaven on earth is the restoration. The kingdom of God, the culture of heaven on earth is what needs to be restored. And he says, guys, you are so focused on Israel that you're not focused on heaven. So before you do anything, just wait until you get totally immersed in what you've already got. Well, how do you know they got it? Remember what Jesus was saying? It says in Scripture that Jesus gave them instruction on behalf of what? Holy Spirit. They were already hearing Holy Spirit. He says, you can hear already. You got it already. But you ain't ready. So just wait. And look at the response. Verse 7. When they said, when are you going to restore it? Jesus says in verse 7, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Talk about another frustrating moment in the instruction of Jesus. What you want us to do, Jesus, just wait, and I don't know when. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. He said, you need to wait to receive what's already in you. The power will come upon you. You will receive the power when he comes upon you. Well, how does Holy Spirit come upon you? You have to seek him. Because the fact of the matter is, I can proclaim Jesus all day long and go out and live totally separate from the Holy Spirit's instruction. And if we're really honest, most of us do that every day. He says, you want the power to move the government of Savannah? Maybe the first thing the church needs to do is just wait for power to come upon us. Well, how does power come upon me? Is the Holy Spirit going to be sent? No, he's in you. You need to get baptized in him. How do I get baptized him? Stop caring about all this other stuff and fall in love with seeking God. And remember how I said we were all looking for the wrong thing when it comes to Jesus? Let's look at what happens in verse 10. It says, As they strained to see him rising into heaven, 
two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he's going to return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. They were fixated on where is Jesus. Think about the church. All the church ever talks about, when is Jesus going to return? And the angels come down and say, did you not hear him? The times and dates are not for you to know. And what we do is, Jesus come back, Jesus come back, Jesus come back. It's getting worse, it's getting worse. Jesus come back and God's like, it's getting worse because you're still focused on him. Walk through him and access the kingdom of God. And the only way you can maneuver through the rooms of the kingdom of God is to immerse yourself in what Jesus sent as his replacement. Get on fire! Just in case you couldn't hear me. Hmm. Jesus even told them, look at John 16, 7. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate... Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. He's already been sent the moment he left. But they could not get immersed in what they had until they started focusing on the right thing. So what was the instruction? Jesus knew all this. He knew what was going to happen. He's taken up in the cloud and the disciples was just like, He, he knew exactly what was going to happen. So he gives him one instruction. I don't want to give you any expectation on seeking me. He says, it's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know the dates. It's not for you to have any expectation. I'm not going to give you any instructions. Because if I gave them to you, you would not be ready. So I'm giving you one thing. Just wait. And I think the biggest fall in the church is that we have failed to wait on instruction and we implement what we want to do and strategize. I mean, think about how basic church is. We all look the same. Even this, the setup of church is the same thing that, well, you know, I think Martin Luther set up like 500 years ago. It looks the same. Every church this weekend is going to have this original idea to have a Super Bowl party. And some, it's like S-O-U-P, like, oh, that's really original. You obviously waited on the instruction of the Holy Spirit. You know, hey, let's, let's be really strategic and win the loss by taking the pagan tradition of an Easter egg and get kids to run around the field picking them up. And maybe they'll know Jesus. I'm hoping those are amens. <laughs> Y'all know I'm telling the truth. We have stopped seeking instruction from the Holy Spirit and we've started seeking how can we be relevant to our culture? How can we win the lost? And God's like, I'd like to win you. You claim me. 
But when was the last time you sought me? When was the last time you waited for my instruction? When was the last time before you replied to someone or, or blessed someone or before you got in your car or before you started your day? When was the last time you asked me what would you have me do? When was the last time you just waited? The reason people receive a manifestation of the Holy Spirit sometimes on a second occasion is because oftentimes when we get saved, we're singularly focused on Jesus. So we have to create this culture in church where we say, who wants to get baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because we haven't gotten the point that your first instruction in salvation is you just wait. It's not that the Holy Spirit's not in you is you have not immersed yourself in him, therefore you have not experienced him. So we, we do all this strategic church stuff. We're going to have a fire baptism. We're going to have people come up and get slain in the spirit. That was never the point. Does it happen? Sure. Am I saying that that stuff's fake? No, I'm not. I believe that people who genuinely seek God, his power will overshadow them. I'm not saying that's fake. But what I am saying is that the church has normalized that as if you don't have that, you don't have him. The point was for you to surpass that and just seek him. But we normalize it. And this is what the church does. Oh, you must not have the Holy Spirit because you don't speak in tongues. Totally forgetting when Paul says, hey, Tongues is the least coveted gift. Scripture. And then all the churches quote, you know, um, Acts chapter 2 next week, when it says, <laughs> when it says, oh, well, the fire fell and they spoke in tongues. No, 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 no. They spoke in 15 languages of the world for one purpose, not look at me. The purpose was unity. But we all put our own stuff on this, and we just don't seek. He says, you've got one instruction, people. Wait. Wait to, wait to get immersed in me. Wait to be baptized in a Holy Spirit so that every strategy, every, everything you do is holy. That's how a church goes out and says, let me serve you instead of you serving me. That's how a church goes out and really starts to bless people. That's how a church becomes a church who can turn the other cheek because they're totally immersed in a spirit that is holy. That can only come from God. Is this okay? Look back at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They wanted power in a literal kingdom. But Jesus knew, no, 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 no. You need power to move from your current place of Jerusalem to where you never had access to, the flipping Roman government you're a bunch of nobodies no one knows you but I'm going to use you to show the world who I am you're going to need power for that 
You want to know why it's power? You know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. A lot of us, including me, we know the truth that it starts in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So we have to start here and let God spread our influence. But there is significance about these places. Jerusalem was the place Jesus was executed. Judea was where they rejected him. Samaria was, was regarded as a wasteland of impure people. And to the ends of the earth, that was a common uh, uh, name for Gentiles who were considered unworthy. He says, I want you to go to the place that executed me, the place that rejected me. I want you to go to the wastelands, and I want you to go to the unworthy. And if you're going to go to those places, they're not going to receive you. They're going to hate you, and they're going to kill you. So you're going to need power. And you want to know why the church has become so timid and bend over backwards to accept every sin and culture? Because we have not just waited and became immersed in him. And because we're not immersed in him, we let everything else direct us. I think the most powerful outreach initiative we can do is not go feed another homeless project, which we're doing on February 23rd, by the way. Because <laughs> we still got to be faithful and we got to do it. I'm not against that. We've been supporting it for six years now. and We're going to do it. Amen. What I'm saying, though, is the most powerful outreach initiative is not feed the homeless and minister to recovery and, do, and, and feed starving kids in China. The most powerful, y'all laughing at me, the most powerful outreach initiative we could do is just get together and wait and just seek him and become fully immersed in him. Because if we would all become fully immersed, the fire would spread. And as I look at the culture of relentless, you know, I'm sitting back here on the piano tonight trying to play, and I'm sitting here and watching people, and we're singing these songs. You know, we're, 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 we're singing songs like, we go from glory to glory, and, and we're singing songs like how beautiful he is and how beautiful the name. And it wasn't until set of fire that anyone did anything or maybe even beautiful name. But we're, we're sitting here singing all these songs, and everyone in the congregation is coming in like this. Are we really ready for anything? When is our passion for him going to rise up? Well, I just worship Jesus in my own way. Do you not remember the story of David and the reign of David? When, when, when Solomon became king, they prayed so loud that the city shook. When Jesus died, the earth quaked, rumbled. And we think that quiet praise is okay. Because we're not immersed in him. We have not learned to just wait and become totally immersed in all that is he. And I know I'm challenging you. But we, someone's got to. I got to challenge myself. Just being totally transparent, I was back there playing piano. I thought to myself, man, are you playing or are you worshiping? Are you just playing or are you getting lost?
And if we begin to look at what we're doing, I wonder if we really have anything in order to go forth. Well, the angels coming and telling the apostles, like, hey, um, y'all need to stop looking for Jesus. They did that. In verse 12, it says, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room. Everyone say upper room. They went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Different Judas. The other Judas is already dead. I find it funny. Jesus told them in verse 4, wait, don't leave Jerusalem. They were still looking at Jesus. And then the angels were like, what are you doing? Go back. So they did. They went back. And so often I wonder if we need to start asking ourselves the question that the angels asked the disciples, why are we still here? Because what church has become all about is we're going to come to a service and hopefully someone will pray over us because our life sucks so that we can feel a little bit better until we wake up tomorrow morning in reality all over again or go right back into our homes tonight to reality all over again. And we love Jesus, we love Jesus. I hate my life. And I believe God's kind of saying like, why are you still there? Have you been waiting on anything? Have you been, have you, are you really immersing yourself in Holy Spirit? You want some significant change in your house tonight? Go home and get immersed in God without the help of the congregation and a band. If we were including the worship leaders, including the band, including the pastor, including the elders, let's get lost in him so this is not so hard. And quite frankly, if we don't do it, we don't deserve to be a house. They got it. They're like, all right, we go into the room. And in verse 14, It says they all met together. They were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Why is that significant? Well, one, they were obedient to the instructions. They were waiting. They they didn't know what to wait for. They didn't have any idea or picture. They were just waiting. God, what do you have? And they weren't just waiting alone. It says they had Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Women were hardly ever mentioned, but they were mentioned here. And the brothers of Jesus never really supported his ministry until they finally saw the dude rise up from the grave. Pretty convincing reason. Well, they were all just coming together. And they were waiting. And they were meeting together constantly and united in prayer. That's all they did. They didn't go spend thousands of dollars on signs. They, they, didn't, they didn't go start up, you know, Facebook ads and Instagram ads. And I'm fully convinced that even if it was back then, they wouldn't have done it. Because the instruction wasn't go advertise. The instruction wasn't go tell people. Jesus didn't say go tell people about me. Jesus didn't say go save the city. He said you go and seek me. You wait until you get power. And if you don't have power, don't go because they're going to look at you and think you're crazy, you're stupid, you're hypocritical, and you got no power. He says, do not move anywhere until you get power. And you only get it by waiting. 
and immersing yourself in doing one thing, seeking. You will not get power by a touch from a pastor. You're not going to, I, I can't stand that in the church. I got to go get a touch from God because I've had a bad week. No, that's not how it works. He didn't say go to the priest and get anointed so you can get power. He said go seek me and don't expect anything. Don't expect healing. Don't expect fire. Don't expect tongues. Don't expect clouds in the air. Don't expect for the temperature to fall. Don't expect, don't expect your finances to get better. Just go seek me. That's it. And as they began to seek, contrary to popular belief, I believe they got their first manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't fire in Acts 2 and it wasn't tongues. It was something else. Y'all with me? Look at verse 15. During this time, when about 120 believers were together, let me just say this. I don't think 120 started in the upper room. I think a few were obedient. They were just seeking. And at this point, 120 were together in one place. That's about where we are, where we are at Relentless. We've got about 120 active people. When I say active, coming at least once or twice a month, consistently. It says they were 120 believers together in one place, and then Peter stood up and addressed them. Now, I want you to imagine, they didn't have any expectation. They didn't know what to expect. They were just sitting together seeking God for days. I'm not sure how long it was, but can you imagine? They were just getting together, and they were praying. They were praying. God, have your way. We want you. We want you, God, we love you, praise you, we give you thanks, we give you honor, we want you, we want you. And all of a sudden, in their praying, Peter's like, hey, and this ain't like Peter. The only leadership role Peter has ever taken is trying to slice a dude's ear off. Even though Jesus is like, you're Peter and you're not Simon, this is the first time Peter actually takes a stance as a rock. He stands up, he says, brothers? He gets the typical church language in that moment. Brothers, he said. He said, he said the scriptures, it's like he's having this manifested gift of the revelation of knowledge. He, he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Think about, where, do you know how confused they were? It's the same questions we asked. Why did Jesus pick that dude if he knew he was going to betray him? They were probably confused. The dude they were following for three years gets murdered, rises from the grave, walks around transfiguring for 40 days, teaching about stuff they didn't know of. Then he says, now you're going to do it and I'm going to go away. And then angels came down and said, go back to Jerusalem. They were probably a little up in arms. And Peter gets up, he's like, oh, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit who Jesus said was, he was sending so they knew to seek through who? King David. King David was a psalmist. 
Some of the biggest prophetic words are not going to come from prophets, but from songwriters. David prophesied it. He prophesied about Judas. He says, Judas was one of, the, of us and shared a ministry with us. Judas, at verse 18, had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Of course. He turned his back on Jesus, got paid, then bought something with the money. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. Jeez, Bible, keep it rated G. <laughs> See, a lot of scholars, we, we know the stories about Judas hanging himself, but many scholars believe that the rope snapped. And what happened was he spilled, he, he literally was, his intestines spilled out. That's what killed him. Nice. Verse 19. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Al-Kadama, which means feel the blood. That's a nice family heirloom. <laughs> Where are you from, feel the blood? Verse 20. So Peter continued. This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. And it also says, let someone else take his position. They were seeking not knowing what to do. And all of a sudden, because they were seeking, the Holy Spirit revealed himself. He says, you, before anything else can happen, before fire comes in the room, before anything happens, before you're sent on to ministry, You've got to replace Judas. The first manifestation of seeking and waiting was a revelation of truth. They came together. They were being obedient. And Peter's like, I know what we got to do. And it didn't happen the moment they left the angels. It didn't happen the moment they got in the upper room. They got in the room. They sought God. They sought being immersed in him. And Peter saw it. Guys, we don't need to go tell anyone about Jesus right now. We've got to do first things first. We've got to replace Judas. They were seeking answers. Jesus was gone. And they got the answers in unified obedience, fellowship, and seeking. Peter stands up and he gets a revelation of why. He says, y'all, King David spoke about this. And not only did Peter get a revelation of the truth and the why, but he got a revelation, obviously, of what his position was supposed to be because he was stepping into his leadership capacity as the rock that would build the church for Jesus. He says, I get it. And he says, we have got to do something. But seeking just isn't getting with God in quiet because the revelation of knowledge to Peter came because he was obviously well-versed in knowing what the Psalms were. He was reading. He was studying. He knew that Psalm 69 and 109, if you want to read those, that's where the prophecy about Judas is. He knew what he was talking about. See, we get this idea that seeking is coming together and just being quiet for a long time. No, 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 no. Seeking is people who seek come together and seek. But what church has done is we've geared everything to a non-believer. Everything is about getting saved. We've got to turn the tables. 
our focus for church is not let's make this place comfortable for people to get saved. It's we need to get together as people who seek God individually and start seeking him together to get further instruction about how to change the city and win the lost. And you know why it's not happening? Because all preachers are doing is preaching on how to get saved through Jesus. When the angels themselves said, stop looking there. You see, we've got to introduce them to Jesus. We can't, we can't not do that. But where we're missing is that we're not seeking together unified. We've forgotten how to wait on the Lord. Is this making any sense? So he gave instruction, verse 21, getting toward the end. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They got revelation of what to do because instead of worrying, they were simply obedient, they were seeking, and they were with each other. And out of that seeking, they got the qualifications of who was worthy to replace Judas. It had to be someone who was walking with Jesus through everything, and it had to be someone who was going to proclaim and testify of the resurrection. How are you qualified to be a true seeker of God? You've got to be a disciple who walks with him, and your mouth needs to be full of testifying and proclaiming instead of complaining and sulking. That's the culture we've got to build. Because the fact of the matter is, all of our lives have times where we complain and we're, and we're hurt and we go through hard times. But that should not be dealt with in this environment. It, do, it doesn't need to be, let's have a large altar call so that you can cry about your issues. It needs to be, let's meet together so consistently that we are in fellowship and we are family and we take care of each other to such a degree that when we come together, worry is not even in the atmosphere. Because we've already met together. We've already done that. The men already met together at breakfast. The women already met together at study. We already met together in prayer. We've already done all these things. We are taking care of that because we're constantly meeting together. We're in fellowship. And when we come here, it's time to wait for instruction. It's time, what God, what would you have us do? God, what do you want from us? See, it's not one without the other. It's not create a place where we can come and get our problems fixed. It's create a culture of people who seek together. And in verse 24, then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men have you chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. The very next thing they do when they got revelation of what to do is they prayed. You want to know why their natural resp response was to pray? 
because they had already started seeking and creating a lifestyle of what? Prayer. You want to know why you don't pray? Because you're not seeking him in prayer. Every time something happens, we ask everyone else and we never get to God. Why? Because it's not your natural. And I'm not trying to push any agenda here. I'm not trying to grow our numbers at prayer on Monday night. I'm not trying to do any of that. I am simply pointing out the idea that we have not sought him. We're seeking help for ourselves. And he says, I'm sending you a helper. Get immersed in him. Even Jesus did that. In Luke 6, the same writer, look at verse 12, talking about Jesus. It says, one day soon after Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 to be an apostles. Here are the names, Simon, you named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. You want to know why Jesus picked a betrayer? Because he prayed about who to pick. But what we do is we don't pray about who to pick. We use our logic, we use our reasoning, and we say, who do we feel good about? But some, I am tired of people telling me they don't feel good about this person or that person because I get, you're not seeking anything. Sometimes the biggest key to a movement is the one person that you don't think fits. I'm sorry, y'all, but I'm passionate about this. I'm tired of trying to use our own minds, which are screwed up, to figure out how to move forward. I want to go back to what they did. They didn't get together and say, hey, what y'all think about Matthias? What y'all think about justice over here? They didn't do that. They, they didn't gather and say how you feel about this person or that person and their gift or this gift. They didn't do that. They just said, Pray. That's all he did. And in verse 26, the last verse, it says, And they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. Casting lots? That doesn't seem very spiritual. You know what casting lots was? It was essentially throwing dice. Which is kind of cool because they sought God and God said, throw some dice. <laughs> I'm not advocating gambling, by the way. <laughs> and I began to think like all this powerful scripture and that's how you end the first chapter of Acts, throw some dice to decide after you pray, 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 pray. But what if they remembered a method about seeking because... The very last scripture I'm reading tonight, Proverbs 16, 32, it's better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. And you want to know why the dice was the biggest, most appropriate method right here? Because they weren't relying on their emotions or their circumstances, or their feelings, or their personality. They said, we're going to put it all in your hands. They were simply doing what was revealed through obedience, fellowship, and prayer.
They were allowing God to guide their decisions. They obeyed. They were unified. They were in prayer. They were in scripture. They desired to do God's will. They did what Jesus did, and they relied on God. And out of all of that, it came down to one thing. Go to Jerusalem and just wait. I want to become a church so on fire that the only thing we move off of is waiting. Just waiting like, God, what, what do you want? Do you want us to expand? Do you want us to meet in homes? Do, do you want us to stop outreach for a year so that we can learn to seek you? Do you want us to turn off the sound system and just start singing together so we can learn what true praise is? Like, what, what do you want, God? Do you want us to stop serving coffee to make people feel comfortable? What do you want? What, what, do you, what do you want? Do you want us to become secret and no one knows about us so that we can just learn how to seek you? What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> and it came down to one thing. He said, I want one thing from you. Stop seeking me with expectation and times. Stop looking to find out when Jesus is coming back. He says, just do one thing for me. Wait and ask for instruction from me. And if you do that, you will have the power to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You want to know how to affect the government of Savannah and Pooler and all the areas? Just wait, and I'll tell you what you need. Who wants to just wait? I said, who wants to just wait? Let's stand. Who's ready to be a church on fire?